so uh, week two in our series through the book of Judges. Uh, as we said last week, we, we have a sense that this is going to take us up to the end of November, beginning of December. I feel like there's so much here that the Lord wants to, wants to teach us, um, wants us to see as we engage with this together. And on that note, can I just say this is this is this is the passion of my heart that we would that we would as a vast ad to pray that we would engage with this and that's so that's why we've done we've set up the home groups in the way that we've done it this this season because we're passionate about about seeing us all engage with this. My, my heart is that the word would come alive. The word would come alive to us, and I think it, it does that as we as we emerge ourselves in a book, as we emerge ourselves in this together over the next number of months, and as we engage with some of the things that are provoked through this series, as we engage with that, it's inevitably the word is going to come alive to us. And that excites me. It excites me that we could, that collectively, corporately, that the word, as we go through the book of Judges, is going to come alive in us. And uh, so that's what we're after. That's what we want. We believe that's what he wants, that his word, his, his, uh, his way would just come alive in us um, as we go through this. So if we can just recap a wee bit for a few minutes, I'm aware that there's some that weren't here last week, and, and uh, I want to make sure that you can catch as much of uh, how we began this series last Sunday morning. And there's a few things, that, there's three or four things that we feel that, that are that are that are themes, the themes, the threads that are going to be picked up, uh, themes that we're going to pick up as we go through this whole series. The first one being that we, as we mentioned last week, was that, that we will see one, we will see a God who relentlessly offers grace. And so have that, even though there's times where we will see, see some of the most uh, violent pictures, we'll see some... Uh, see some things we'll read that will cause us to, to squirm. We want you to know that he is one who relentlessly offers grace. He relentlessly offers grace when it's not deserved. And even as we see, as we engage with this book, we will see that it's, it's uh, relentlessly offered even when it's not sought. It's relentlessly, grace relentlessly offered when it's not deserved and when it's not sought. We want to see the whole way through this book that Father, that God, God wants all of us. He is passionate about you. He is committed to you. And he wants all of you. And we've seen it, we, we, we talked about it last week, and we'll see it over and over again throughout this series that how we have ended up accommodating idols. We have learned to live with idols. We'll see as we continue the series that there is this need for continual spiritual renewal. Uh, we were we were here yesterday morning with with Eugene, the few of us it was, it was a great morning, and uh, and, he, and, he, and he said this is he, there's a lot of things that you could quote from Eugene. There's a lot of things that that are noteworthy, uh, but he said this as he was talking through Paul's writings to to the in so many of Paul's letters is in the Greek it's it's not just being filled; it's a continual being filled, continue being filled with the Holy Spirit. We see some of something of that as we go through the book of Judges, this need for a continual spiritual renewal. And sorry, Eugene said that today's success or today's anointing 
something along those lines where he said, today's success or today's anointing are not a guarantee for tomorrow's challenge. Today's anointing is not a guarantee for tomorrow's challenge because I need him today. And so I'm so grateful for his, for his spirit that causes me to come alive yesterday, causes me to be able to, to, to be the best dad I can be yesterday, the best husband that I can be yesterday. I'm so grateful. There's moments where I fail, of course, but there's, there's moments where, where I'm aware of his him living in me and causing me to react and respond the way that I do, and, and that's, that today is not enough. That yesterday is not enough for today. I need him today. To stand before you, I desperately need him. And, and we'll see throughout the book of Judges this need for continual spiritual renewal. And we'll also see, and my heart is over and over again, that we'll be able to continually point us to Jesus. We'll see our need for a true Savior. And, over, and we want to be able to draw out, draw out of these stories uh, points that will, that will draw us towards Jesus, that will point us, direct us towards a true judge, a true Savior. So as we, began in, uh, as we began in Judges chapter 1 yesterday, we already seen from the very beginning, we've seen it right from the start of the story, and it continues throughout the story of the Bible, it continues throughout the history of the church and right to today, that the Lord keeps his promises. The Lord keeps his promises. And the question being asked as we enter into this book is, will we do our part or will we do our own thing? And it's a question that we still need to be asked today. We still need to ask it today. The Lord keeps his promises. Will we do our part or will we do our own thing? We asked ourselves, uh, it feels like it's consumed my week and it's going to be so much a part of what we're talking about this morning. But what do we want for the next generation? What do we want for our, for our peers? What do we want f- for them? And we've seen in, in verses 12 to, 12 to 15, the, the example of Caleb gives us an idea gives us some idea of what, what we should want, what that, that uh, radical trust, radical obedience that we want to see passed on to the next generation, the same way Caleb did with his daughter. And so we've seen at the, at, at the start that it started off well. The men of Judah started off well, but they began to measure their own strength against the enemies. And so in verse 19 of chapter 1, the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains. See, they started off well. They began to take the land, but then they began to, to look at the strength of the enemy. They began to look at what the enemy had, and they, and they began to measure their own strength against the enemies. And it caused them to withdraw. It caused them to, to back away. And that's what happens when we rely on self. And, th- and this is my experience, and I don't know whether... You can relate to this or not, but when we begin to rely on self, we make wrong choices. We make such wrong choices when we begin to rely on self. And we see how this painfully plays out as we start off in Judah and goes right through the other tribes mentioned and how they keep giving in to the enemy. They keep accommodating the enemy until they're just almost in partnership with those that the Lord had told to remove. And so we begin to make wrong choices. We begin to compromise. And we've seen that the, as we got, to, as we sort of summarized the, the first chapter of Judges, we've seen 
what it looked like to, to obey half-heartedly. We've seen what it was like to... We've seen what halfway discipleship, I think, looked like. And the final, the final thing that I want to say by way of recap is that the men of Judah in verse 19 of chapter 1 said that they couldn't. We can't do it. But we actually find out at the start of Judges chapter 2 is that they disobeyed, is that they wouldn't. And so I found myself, I almost wish I hadn't been provoked by this, but I found myself this week asking times where I think, feel like I'm saying that I can't do it. I've been asking myself, am I, can I not do it? Or am I actually saying that I won't? That's a big difference. As you think about engaging with, with challenging people, as we think about engaging in evangelism, God, I can't do it. I can't say it. They'll laugh at me. They'll reject me. They'll call me names. I can't do it. But actually, is it that I'm saying that I won't? And, uh, and again, there are questions that I think we will continue to ask as we continue to journey through this, through this book. So I know that last week we read, I'm really keen, I know it takes up a wee bit of time, but I'm really keen that we just read this together, part of this, part of engaging in it, that we actually see it in the book together, we read it together, and at the end of this, at the end of this series, we'll have read and studied a book of the Bible together, and that excites me. And so last week we read Judges chapter 1, and we finished at uh, 2, verse 6. Um, but there's one point that I would love to make in, in, uh, in the first couple of chapters, in the first couple of verses in chapter 2 that we didn't get to last Sunday. So if it's all right, let's, let's read this together. I want to st- start in Judges chapter 2, verse 1, and, uh, and read right through to Judges chapter 3, verse 6. So if I can just say that the, Judges chapter 1, it's, it feels like it's a, a reporting of events. And when we get to the second chapter, the second chapter in the beginning of chapter 3, it's a, or verse 19 of chapter 2, sorry, it's, it's, it's not a reporting of events, it's a probing of the motives. And it's an exposing of the attitudes that uh, were the reason for the events that occurred in chapter 1 so the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers I said I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land but you shall break down their altars yet you have disobeyed me Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. There will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. And when the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud and they called that place Bochum. They were offered sacrifices to the Lord. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived them, outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. 
and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the, the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger, because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. Ashtaroths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed him over to raiders who plundered them, and he sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to flight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed these, those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Chapter 3. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience, the five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains, from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons served their gods thank you Lord for your word and uh, just uh, at the end of at the end of that little section in, in verse 5 and 6 of chapter 2 and chapter 3 verse 5 and 6 such a contrast it almost looks at the end of, of 2 verse 5 and 6 that they've repented they're weeping something has happened that causes them to remember that, remember to turn back. But when we get to the end of this report, or the end of this exposing of motives, we see that their weeping meant nothing because they had given their daughters in marriage and were serving the gods of the other nations. And how did we get there? How did they get there? 
point that I want to make really quickly in, in, uh, at the beginning of Judges chapter 2. It just felt just quite significant as a, reading through this over and over that the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to, to Bochum and uh, sometimes there's, there's words, there's moments where you, where you read and you think, I wonder, is there anything significant about Gilgal? Can we, can we step back into Gilgal and see what, what was going on? Was there any reason, was there any significance that, that the angel of the Lord came from there? Or it just happened to be that's where the angel was hanging out? But in Joshua chapter 5, uh, if you're comfortable taking notes in your Bible, or if you're just taking notes, just, just to know that uh, the story of Gilgal is, is back. The significance of Gilgal is in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 9. And so what has happened is that Joshua has led the people. He's, he's, been, he's a successor to Moses. Moses doesn't get to lead the people across to the promised land, but Joshua does. And, and Joshua in, in uh, 3 and 4, we read of how he leads his people across into the promised land. He leads the people across the Jordan. Miraculously, we see God's hand at work as Joshua leads the people. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, we have this, this moment that causes the men in the room to get a bit uncomfortable. This moment where all those that haven't been circumcised are circumcised. And so what has happened up to this point is that they've been set free. They've, been, they've walked in the wilderness for years and, and then Joshua leads them into the promised land. And then they're circumcised as a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And so here they stand, a people set free, rescued, called out, brought into the land that he had always wanted them to walk in. And they've made this sign as a covenant that they belong to him, that he is their God. They are his people. And then Gilgal is named Gilgal because the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal means to, to roll. And so God was saying to the gathered people, to this, to this people who had made it, who had made it across and had now made this sign of the covenant, who had entered into this covenant with God, He's saying, now today, Joshua, I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt. I've rolled it away. And it's this word reproach sort of caught my attention. That's why I just wanted to mention it because it, it, the fuller translation of this word is, is a, it's a condition of shame. It's a taunt of the enemy. And so this moment, what a significant moment that here God stands, God has Joshua and all the people standing about to enter into the promised land, making a sign of the covenant. And he says, I've taken away the shame of the enemy. I've taken away his taunt. I've rolled it. I've rolled it away. Now we're ready. We're ready to take the land. You're ready to enter into the promises. You're ready to, to enter into the, the fullness of the covenant that I had made. And I just think the angel purposely comes from Gilgal. Because again, if you're anything like me, sometimes my failure to obey is because of a failure to remember. And I think the angel comes from Gilgal that said, do you not remember this moment? Do you not remember the moment where you were set free, that, you'd, that you, needed, you needed set free from the, 
from the, from the bondage of the enemy. And I heard your cry and I set you free. And even though we've walked around in the wilderness, I've made a way, I've miraculously made a way so that you can walk into the land and into the promises and into the destiny that I had for you. And you begin to slip back into, into your old ways. You begin to slip back into the way that you were. And so I think the angel comes from Gilgal to once again cause him to remember that no longer the condition of shame has been taken away. The taunt of the enemy has been taken away so that you can walk in purpose, that you can walk in promise, you can walk in destiny. For me, a failure to obey is often because of a fail to remember. Fail to remember that he's dealt with the enemy. He's exposed his works. He's exposed them. He's made a public spectacle of the enemy on the cross. And sometimes I forget. Forget what he's done. Forget that he's taken away this condition of shame. Forget that the, that, the, that, the, that reproach has been rolled away. And he longs, he stands, longing to enter into this covenant that I would, that I would, that my heart would be circumcised and I would walk in the fullness and the destiny that he has for me. And so often it's because I've forgotten, I've failed to remember. And this is what seems to play out in the, in, in the next generation. This is what seems to play out as we watch uh, this story go from one generation to the next. Because in chapter, in chapter 2, verses 6 and 9, we, we get an insight into the, what the first generation looked like. Joshua and, um, and the other fathers, Joshua and his generation. And so this is what they did. They served the Lord. They took possession of the land. And then there's this little moment this week that I... That I just love these moments. I just love moments where I, I can read through the book of Judges. I don't know how many times I've read through the book of Judges. But you get to Judges chapter 2, verse eight, or verse 9, and you see that, that Joshua was buried in the land of his inheritance. There's something in that just caused me to rejoice. Because here was one that, that served the Lord. Here was a generation, a man that represented a generation that served the Lord and took possession of all that God had for them. And he actually died. He died in the land of his inheritance. He died in the place where he had he had taken hold of what was his and he lived in it to the end. I, I'm, I'm long and that would be said of me. That I took would take hold of that inheritance. That I would take hold of that which he has which he has which he has bought, which he has paid a price that I could take hold of, and that I would hold on to it and live in it to the end. Live in the place of inheritance right to the end. And be buried in that place. And so that's what the first generation looked like. This is what is possible. This is the goal. And we get to verses 10 to 18 or 19. We've already read and we begin to see what the, the problem with the second generation. And we're told that this, the, the next generation grew up who neither knew the Lord or knew what he had done for Israel. And, I, and for me, I, 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 don't, I don't think, I think it would be crazy to think that they, they weren't aware of what happened. It would be crazy to think that, that some of the, the, this generation didn't know that their fathers had, had miraculously entered into the promised land. And I don't think it's not that they didn't know it in theory. It's not that they hadn't heard the story, but it's that his saving acts meant nothing to them. His saving acts meant nothing to them anymore. 
And so this is why I, as we, as we talked about it on Wednesday, and I've thought about it since Wednesday, and continue to think about it today, and thinking about it last yesterday morning as we chatted with Eugene, our kids need to experience God. Your kids need to experience God. Our kids, my kids need an encounter with Jesus. Your kids need an encounter with Jesus. Or your peers, if you don't, if you're not falling into that category yet of having kids, but your peers, those that will come after you, whoever it is in your sphere of influence, they need an experience with God. They need a, an encounter with the Holy Spirit. They need it. And so as I read, I'm reading through this, I'm, I'm starting to ask myself the question, who's at fault here? Is the first generation at fault? Is it, is it because they failed to reach out? Did they fail to reach out? Or was it the second generation's fault? Was it because they had, had already hardened their hearts? So we're, I think we're conditioned this way to, to, to want to know who's at fault. Who's to blame here? And I think in many ways both or none. I don't think we can pin it all in one generation. But, but there is some things that I would love to say. Dad mentioned it on Wednesday as he, as he spoke about this, around this language of next generation, as we spoke about what is it that we want for the next generation. And Dad said that, that for him, as we grew up in, in the home with mom and dad, and as he's continued to live that out with interns that have came through, through the doors of mom and dad's home, that there is no hiding place. There's no hiding place when it comes to things concerning your kids or your grandkids, or your peers. There's no hiding place. And young people, and, and I think anybody, but young people sometimes especially, or kids especially, are sensitive to inconsistency. And so that's why it's really important to hear that I want to be a father. I want to I live a life in my home that, that knows and acknowledges that there's no hiding place here. Because my kids are going to, my kids are going to, are going to be sensitive to, the, to inconsistency. And so they can watch me. They can watch me here on a Sunday, stand here preaching about how good he is, how good Jesus is. Or they can watch me just loving him in worship. But because they're so sensitive to inconsistency, if they see nothing of that from one Sunday to the next... then it, become, it becomes clear to me that what we said last week is that one generation believes the next end up assuming and the next deny. And so the, some of the language that Neville's been using over the last number of weeks uh, around different topics has been this, the language of marrying actions and words. And so that's, that's why we asked the question in, uh, in our home groups during the week. We asked it purposely in, in this way. What is it that we want for our next generation? And how are we making it a reality? What is it that we want for our peers? What is it that we want for those in our sphere of influence? What is it that we want for them? And how are we making it a reality? Because trust me, I could, I could give a really good answer of what I want for the next generation. I could give a really smart, holy, spiritual answer that could impress. But what's been grabbing me the last number of months is how, I'm, how am I making what I want for my kids 
How am I making what I want for my peers? How am I making that a reality? How am I marrying my words with what I'm doing? How am I marrying my words and my actions? And I think there's also some things that are, that are important to say at this stage. I, I, want, I want you to know, when I think I'm, I'm, I'm among people who, who know that we can't rely on the church, we can't rely on an institution to pass on faith. I, I am passionate that my kids grow up with a, with a love for the church. That your kids, that your peers grow up passionate about the church. But I don't want my kids and your kids to rely on a Sunday morning, to rely on what we do here to pass on faith. We can't rely on an institution to pass on faith. And we can't rely on formal instruction only to pass on faith. See, they, these guys, I believe, would have heard the story. They'd have heard the theory. But they never knew him relationally the way Joshua and the fathers did. They never knew him personally. They never experienced it. That's so why I want my kids, and I want your kids, and I want my peers and your peers to know God <coughs> relationally, to know him personally. And I think that's what happened as, as the next generation began to take up their place. They didn't know him relationally. They didn't know him personally. They had no experience of God. They had no encounter with the Spirit of God. Verse 17. I'm just aware of time and I think what we found in our Wednesday nights is that, that this seemed to be a, a thing that, that caused the lengthiest, lengthiest amount of time in our conversations. And I just think there's some more stuff that we can keep on talking about this in our Sunday mornings, but also just in our daily conversations. But let me, let me just read verse 17, making sure there's no kids in the room, because this is really provocative. This is a provocative, provocative language, provocative image that is used often in in the in the Bible. And it says that they would not listen. Even for this generation, the Lord raised up judges that would that would get them back in the right path, that would that would cause them to be set free from the oppression that they'd got themselves in again. And would cause them to, to walk once again as the people of God that he had longed for them to walk as. But he uses this image because the, they would not listen to those that he had brought to help. He would not listen to those that he had brought to set them free from the oppression that they'd found themselves in once again. And so he says that they would not listen to the judges, but they prostituted themselves. Really provocative language. It's a provocative image. Because some of this stuff needs to get our attention. Sometimes our, our attention needs to be grabbed. And, um, and here we... we, we we begin to think about what that, what is, what is that, what is that image all about? Why is that type of language being used? And I think there's something about beginning to see that this is, we're talking about lives that are out of control. Those that have prostituted themselves are lives that are out of control. Are lives that are, that are desperate. And sadly, those that, that have, that are giving themselves to something where they will get no pleasure or, or love in return. And that's what they've done. They've prostituted themselves. They've given themselves to something that will 
that will chew them up and spit them out. They'll give themselves to, to something that will that will give them no love back in return. And it seems harsh language, but sometimes we need to, we need to hear it to get us to, to shake out of our complacency, to shake out of our passivity. But I think probably as bad, if not worse, is that they prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. And so it's not that they it's it's not that they had stopped acknowledging the Lord. I don't think we we see that they I don't think we see that they stopped acknowledging and crying out to him and weeping before him. They still did that, but now they'd added on these other gods. They'd added on other gods to worship. And so now we're faced, as we see the second and the third generation, as we see what begins to, how their lives begin to play out, we see the combined worship of the Lord with idols. And if I can just, if I can just say this, uh, it's Judges 17, we'll probably get here, but this is how crazy the combining worship of the Lord with other gods is. And we have the story of, of, uh, of a man called Micah. And uh, that's a strange story. He had, st- he had stolen silver from his mum, but then he brought it back to his mum. His mum wanted to bless him. Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the, the silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord. So still, even, even as we get on in the story, we get to Judges chapter 17, there's still an acknowledgement of the Lord. I'm going to give this silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved, to make a carved image and a cast idol. And I'll give it back to you. It's an insane picture that here we have on such, such ignorance, the display of... Worship, combined worship of the Lord with other idols. And so what we have as we go through the book of Judges is, is those that seem to accept as we, as we go from one generation to the next, those that will now, well, we'll accept the existence of God, but we will no longer accept that he is exclusively sovereign. We've accepted his existence. So, so Joshua and those before him grew up worshiping the Lord and the Lord alone. You only will we serve. And we get, to this, we get to this stage of the story and we painfully read that they have now accepted his existence but not the exclusivity, his exclusive sovereignty. And the same thing happens today. We do the same thing today. Our, this generation is getting sucked into doing the same thing that will, it will call Jesus a good teacher. We'll call him a wise man. We'll call him kind and nice and will accept his existence, but will not accept that he is the exclusive way to the Father. We'll not acknowledge that it's Jesus himself that said, that if you want to get to the Father, it's only through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one is coming to the Father except through me. And I think it's really important. Can I just say that I think it's really important that we say that he is exclusive, but his message is inclusive. His mess- he is exclusive. There is no one like him. He alone is worthy. And Jesus is the only way to get to him. 
But I think it's also important to say that his message is for everyone. There is no one outside the message of grace. There is no one outside the mercy and the love and the goodness of God. And so he is exclusive, but his message is inclusive. But here the, here the people of God have got from a place of worshiping the Lord alone to worshiping to the worship of God plus. And I don't know if you've ever found yourself in, in that space. I, I, I have. And, and I know that there would be times where I still will, where um, my, my worship is more a case of God plus rather than God alone. And so again, I'm asking myself the question, what is it that I want my kids to see? What is it that I want my peers to see? What is it that those in our sphere of influence that are around us, what is it that we want them to see? And I increasingly am passionate about my kids not seeing divided heart worship. That my kids wouldn't see a divided heart worship between career and him. They wouldn't see a divided heart worship between money and him. They wouldn't see divided heart worship between, between how... I spend my time with my stuff and how I spend my time with him. I want them to see that that he's my all in all, that he alone is worthy, that he alone has my heart, that he alone has my affection, that he alone is my devotion, that I worship him alone and, and never worship, never get sucked in to the place of worshiping, the worship of God plus and so when we get to the third generation, we begin to, to make this land. We get to the third generation, and we're told that they, they, did, they were even more corrupt than the generation before. They were even more corrupt than those of their, their fathers. They followed other gods, and they even worshipped them. And they refused to give it up. And so the response to this, God's response to this is that the damaging presence of the Canaanite nations would remain. We see it at the end of, uh, we see it at the beginning of chapter 2 and we see it at the end of chapter 2 that his response to their refusing to give up, their response to continuing to turn to their ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers is to is that the damaging presence of the Canaanite nations would remain. And I don't know if some, I don't know if you find it hard to read some of the language. But the reality is, the truth is that, that God, he's not willing to force them. He's not willing to force them and ultimately what he's given them is what they want. And, and we see that, we see that in we see that in the story of, of Jesus. We see it in the Gospels. We see it in, in Paul's letter to the Romans. Ultimately, he'll give you what you want. And so they wanted to coexist with the enemy. They wanted to coexist with those that were threatening their inheritance, those that were threatening their destiny, threatening to, to steal their promise. They end up coexisting with them same people, with those same idols. And that's what they want. And so God allows them to remain. But I really believe that as we, as we read in this, the first few verses of chapter 3, that this is such an act of grace. Even in this, 
even when we find it hard to see it, I think his response is one of graciousness. His response is one of still relentlessly offers, offering grace, relentlessly being committed to his people. Cannot tolerate the presence of sin, but he equally cannot tolerate separation from the people that he has committed himself to. And so we're told, even in the midst of them doing even more corrupt things, that the Lord has compassion on them. He still is compassionate. He still is pursuing them in love. He's still longing for them to be the people that he longs for them to be. And so we read that he left them so that he could test them. And so I think it's gracious because his testing is purposeful. His testing is purposeful. He, and his tests, I, I, haven't, I can't remember the wrong person to give a, an analogy here because I haven't, can't remember the last time I'd done a test. And I got to the stage actually in school life where I didn't take tests seriously enough. But when I did, let's pretend we're in a place where I was taking tests seriously and doing my best. Tests are one of those things. And, and, uh, and so the boys are, Caleb actually does a daily test now in P5. Eli does a weekly test. And so what it does is it, it's, it, it forces us to learn. It forces us to study. It forces us to become disciplined. Especially for Caleb, it causes him to rise up to meet the challenge. He, is, he, he wants 10 out of 10 every time. On Friday, he got 9 out of 10. And he was disgusted, horrified with himself. But there's something about a test that causes us to study. It causes us to rise up to meet the challenge. And so we're told at the start of chapter 3 that he left those, he left those nations so that Israelites who had not experienced warfare would now experience a battle. And this test is that those who hadn't experienced warfare would develop a need. They would develop a dependence on him in every situation, in every situation of need. So we, we, we brought Caleb swimming uh, during the week. He's having to do swimming in class. And, and, uh, and again, it's whenever there's no test coming up, whenever you don't know that he's going to have to, to, to swim, and you know there's no... You, you become, you don't become disciplined, and so every time we go to the pool with the kids, we go to Lisbon or we go to a place where there's slides or there's nothing really required of you to discipline yourself to to swim. And so we brought Caleb and Eli to the swimming pool, and so here's two boys that had never experienced this before. This might be a poor analogy, but it's the best I can come up with at the minute. But here's two boys that have never, like these young men, this young generation who had never experienced warfare before. Here we are in the swimming pool with two boys that have never experienced what it's like to be to swim, or to be left, to be left alone for a moment, to see where you were at. And uh, and so the truth be told, I, I had Eli, Judith, and Caleb. Eli was an absolute disaster, so we just threw a ball at each other for the rest of the time. And uh, but but Caleb went for it, and there was times that Judith just left him on his own, so that so that he would be tested. And because he hadn't done it before, there was there was such a vulnerability to him 
that he just needed to know that when he lifted his head up out of the water after trying to do it on his own, that, that mummy was right beside him, that mummy was there. And he just created this, he just created this dependence as he was vulnerable. He's in this place of doing something new that it automatically de- seemed to develop this dependence that every time he found himself getting into trouble, that every time he was in a situation of need, that his dependence was on mummy. And, uh, and I think that's something really loosely of what was going on here that he leaves those that even though they hadn't experienced warfare before he is longing that they would put their dependence on him they have exp- haven't experienced what it's like to put their trust in, in another God they haven't experienced what it's like to put their trust somewhere else but here he is that they'd be exposed to the other nations so that they could develop a dependence on him in every situation of need and ultimately what he wants to see what he wants his people to come back to is that place of obedience. The test is so that he wants to know, will you obey me? He wants to test them so that he will see whether they would obey the Lord's commands. Verse 4, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands. And so he asks, that's what he asked, that's what he was testing for. And he, and he does the same thing for us today. He is, he is asking the same question to us today, I believe. Will you obey me? Will you radically follow me? Will you serve me and me alone? Will you allow me to form and fashion you into the people who will display my goodness, who will display my glory, who will walk in the promises that I have longed for them to walk in? And so, uh, so there's this quote that Tim Keller makes. And I think it's worth quoting it as we as we think about the the problems and the challenges of of passing on from one generation to the next, the challenges of what that all looks like. And Tim Keller says that commitment is replaced by complacency, and then replaced by compromise. And so I just long, and that we that as we go through this series, that we are not that we're doing it for ourselves, and we're doing it for the sake of our kids and for our peers and those in our sphere of influence, that we will be remain committed. Once we once we loosen our commitment, we we give in to complacency, and then we we ultimately compromise. And so finally, there's four things that four things that I one-liners that I, that I felt the Lord was wanting to highlight as we bring this to a close. Jenna's going to do one more song just to allow a few moments to catch your breath, allow a few moments to allow some of this to uh, to sink in. And so what I'd love you to do is that you would remember that you would remember. For me anyway, often a failure to obey is a failure to remember. And so I want you to remember that shame is gone. I want you to remember that he has set you free. I want you to remember that he loves you. And he continually, continually, relentlessly offers grace. So I want you to remember. I want you to, I want you to be bold enough and honest enough and vulnerable enough and true enough to yourself to remove those idols begin to remember and you begin to remove those idols those things that are plus those things that distract from him and him alone remember remove rely rely on him only rely on his strength there is there is some ugly stuff there is some challenging stuff there is some difficult stuff that is no doubt that you have to deal with 
the lesson throughout Scripture, the lesson throughout history, the lesson throughout the most, most incredible missionaries that, that stepped out in faith was that they refused to, to look at the strength of the enemy and allow that to, to be the thing that dictated what they would do. And so they with stories of missionaries, with stories of people that relied on his strength, on his strength only. And then I want to encourage you that you would live what you want to see replicated. You would live what you want to see replicated. So remember, remove, rely, and live what you want to see replicated. Four hours. Remember, remove, rely, replicate. Um, So Father, just thank you. Thank you for thank you for your word. We want to keep on wrestling with this. We want to keep on understanding this. God, I'm so aware some of this is 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 just even personal to me. God, I just thank you that uh, that you can just even in that allow us to engage with this together. God, anything that is of me, anything that is just of 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 personal opinion, anything that is just of um, flesh, that that God, it would be ignored, it would be forgotten about. God, we just remember what you want to say to us. We would remember the things that that have caught our hearts that you want to continue to speak and challenge us with. And so we acknowledge you and we worship you, we love you. In Jesus' name.